you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to join me in Acts chapter number 3. Acts chapter 3, there are 26 verses in this passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 3, we're going to in verse number 1. We'll read uh, through this chapter here. But before we read, I want to ask you a question. Does the name Michael Davenport ring a bell to anybody in here? Keith, do you know who Michael Davenport is? Anybody know who Michael Davenport is? Raise your hand. So those of you that raise your hand know that Michael Davenport is an artist in Athens, Georgia. Uh, he paints with his teeth. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Michael Davenport, when he was 13 years of age, got, uh, he was, has in a really bad accident where he was electrocuted. It blew his toes off of his feet and it blew his arms off of his limbs. So he has no hands, he has no toes. When he was 16 years old, he found out, believe it or not, Josh, that he could draw with a pen in his teeth. And from 16 years of age till today, he's been drawing iconic images of the University of Georgia. Also, he draws the hairy dog and also the arch. Does anybody in here have a painting from Michael? If you have a painting, raise your hand. Isn't that interesting? Very good. It's a fascinating, amazing artist. I was talking to him this week, and we were just kind of chatting a little bit about what happened to him in December. I don't know if you realize this or not, but on Christmas Eve of this past year, he was uh, attacked, and they stole his supplies. This was the second time this had happened to Michael. It was very discouraging. I asked him, I said, how's it going? He says, well, he says, after the accident, after I was robbed, he said, things really picked up. He said, man, people were buying uh, paintings left and right. He said, things were going really well. He says, but now it's February. And he says, I'm not selling as many paintings as I, as I normally do. He says, I can't wait for football season to get back because that's my big season. That's obviously when, when I can sell a lot of paintings. He said, I just sacrificed a major painting that I did uh, just a couple of weeks ago. He talked about with me just a little bit about not wanting individuals to have pity upon him. And he was afraid that people were just buying those paintings out of pity. And he looked at me and he said this. He said, I really hope it ain't like that. Here's a man, no arms, no hands, no toes, paints with his teeth and doesn't want anybody to have pity upon him. He wants to make his own way and he wants to use his gifts and talents to make a living and survive. That's completely opposite of this man that we're looking at today. If you've been joining us through the course of these few weeks, you've been noticing we've been talking about this topic, living with biblical clarity. We need to live our lives with such bi clear biblical clarity that people, when they see us and when they recognize us, uh, they recognize that there's something different about us. And that difference is Jesus. And we're finding here in Acts chapter number 3, there was a man who needed a change in his life. And the only way that he could be changed was through faith. And so in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, I'm not going to ask you to stand because there's so many uh, verses here in this text. But let's look at it and get the context this morning. And then I want to preach a message entitled, A Faith That Changes Lives. Faith that changes lives. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 1. The scripture says, Now Peter and John went up to the temple, into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Whom seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked an alms. 
And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such that I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankles received strength. His ankle bones received strength. And leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened to him. And as the lame man, which was healed, held Peter and John. Wouldn't you, didn't you know that was a sight? I bet that, that was like a... It was like a man that had six legs. I mean, they, did you see him just hugged up on the... Several years ago, uh, we were coming back from Mexico. And uh, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. We were coming back from Mexico, and uh, I had a guy on the trip who had a gallbladder attack. And uh, when we pulled into Carrollton, we couldn't even go to the church first. We had to take him straight to the ER. So we had this big 47-passenger bus, and this 47-passenger bus, Eric, pulled into the emergency room there in Carrollton, pulled right up to the door, and the man draped himself over me. Now, he was twice the man I was. I mean, Lee, he was a little bit bigger than you. No, I mean, not, 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 not saying he's fat. I'm not saying that at all. I'm, I'm just saying he was a big fella. He's a big fella. And he draped himself over me. And when I walked in, the nursing staff said, Oh, no, this man's got four legs. Somebody hurry and help him. And so, I mean, he was, I bet that's exactly what this guy looked like when, he was, when they were walking into the temple. I mean, here they are. He's holding on to them, the Bible says. And the Bible says this. All the people ran together with them to the porch that is called Solomon's greatly wondering. Man, you talk about an opening to a sermon. This was his opening illustration. Here's the sermon, verse number 12. And when Peter saw it, he answered to the people and said, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly upon us as though by our own power or our own holiness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, having glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. Whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong whom ye and see now. Yea, the faith which is by him has been given to him with perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I want that I would ignorance, or through ignorance ye did it. As did also your rulers. But those things which God beforehand had showed by the mouth of all of his prophets that Christ should suffer, hath also suffered. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins be blotted out. And when the times of refreshing shall come, they'll come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall, and Je and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of, restor of restor restoration of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Let me stay stop right here and say this parenthetically. Remember, these individuals are looking for a king to sit and overthrow Rome. And so he's referring here to the millennial kingdom. He said, before the millennial kingdom ever comes, he says, y'all need to get saved. 
You need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then he goes on to say in verse 22, he says, For Moses said unto the fathers of prophets, Shall the Lord your God raise up uh, unto you and your brethren? Like unto me, him shall ye hear of all things whatsoever I say unto you, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear the prophet shall be destroyed among the people. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. Look at what the Bible goes on to say. He says uh, there in the text, uh, Yea, and all the prophets, even from Samuel, and to those that follow after, as many as have a spoken prophet, have likewise foretold these days. Ye are the children of the prophets, and the covenant which God made with you and our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Notice this last part. He says, Unto you. You first, God having raised up his son, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. In regards to the word of God, we find in this text this issue, this overarching theme of faith. Here was a man that needed faith. Here was a church or a community or a temple, if you would, that needed faith. And if there's one thing that we need today more than anything in the world is we need faith. But we don't need just any kind of faith. We need saving faith. And we need a saving faith that can take an individual from the guttermost and make him up into the uttermost. And the only faith that can do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The faith that we have in the name of who Jesus is. And so if we're going to live our life with biblical clarity, we need to understand where our faith comes from. What our faith looks like. And what we need to do if we've never received faith, how we do that. How do we receive that faith? This passage of scripture naturally breaks into four basic categories. Let me show them to you if I could. The first one is found in verses 1 through 11. And in verses 1 through 11, we see the situation where faith is needed. The situation where faith is needed. Every one of us here in this room today has experienced a situation where faith is needed. Some of us in this room today are experiencing that situation right now. May I say this, that the greatest need in our life where faith is needed is in the area of salvation. That's where the greatest need of of faith is needed, in the area of salvation. But I want you to notice in this text, there are three things that just jump off the page of the Bible in relationship to the situation where faith is needed. Let's stay contextually true here and make applications to our life today. Number one, the first thing I want you to see is the brothers. If you have your pens, pencil, lipstick, or mascara, I hope you'll notice in verse number one, the Bible says, Peter and John went up to the temple. I would underline Peter and John. Here are two spiritual brothers. But I want you to understand, they're more than just spiritual brothers. They're almost like blood brothers, Ashley. And the reason why is because they had a business before they come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They were in the fishing business. Can I get a witness right there? They loved to fish. And in this fishing business, they had one other brother, if you would, that loved to join them. His name was James. As a matter of fact, we know that John and James had a reputation. When you put those two together in a room, they were called the Sons of Thunder. The reason why they were called the Sons of Thunder is they knew how to make, raise a ruckus. These were not your average individuals. I'm telling you, these were guys that had a past. These were guys that were a little rough around the edges. These were folks just like me and you. But when Jesus said, follow me, they laid down their old life and by faith walked after Jesus Christ. So much so that in the scriptures we see that Peter, James, and John made up the inner circle of Jesus' ministry. 
When Jesus would go and pray and needed three others to come with him, he'd call Peter, James, and John to come along their side. They loved to pray. And it's very obvious that they loved to pray. Look at what the Bible says. The Bible says, now, when Peter and John, notice the next part, went up together into the temple. I would underline that word, went up together. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture because it's in what's called the imperfect tense. Now, why is that important? Because the imperfect tense gives us the illustration, if you would, or the knowledge from Scripture that says this is something that wasn't their first go-around. This is not the first time they went to the temple to pray. They regularly went to the temple to pray. And the point that we have for us here in this passage of Scripture is there ought to be, as born-again children of God, the regularness of prayer. We need to be regularly praying for lost people, regularly praying that God would use us in a mighty way to reach northeast Georgia for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's this regularity about prayer that Peter and James participated in. And then the Bible says this, that they went up in the ninth hour. This is just a point of reference. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they went to that time of prayer. And so here they go, and as they're going, the brothers are on their way to pray. Not only do you see the brothers, but there's a second thing I want you to see. That's the beggar. You see him there? Notice what the Bible says in verse number 2. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried from whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Here's the beggar. The beggar here, the Bible says, is crippled. He's been crippled from birth. And not only has he been crippled from birth, he can't even get to the temple by himself. Somebody has to carry him. And the scripture says that they laid him by the beautiful gate every single day. That's what daily means. Every day they would lay him there. So there's a regularity in this guy coming. But this guy's not coming into the church. He's sitting outside the church. He is asking for alms. He is hoping that somebody will have pity upon him. You've got the brothers that are coming to pray, but the beggar's coming to receive. He needs funding. He needs somebody to have pity upon him. The scripture also says that they lay him there at the beautiful gate. Here's what's fascinating about that. When you read the Bible, you find beggars in three areas. There are three places that beggars love to go to. Number one, the house of rich people. The house of rich people. You'll Many, many times in Scripture, when you see a rich person, you'll see a beggar somewhere, uh, either by the table or, or by the door, or he's somewhere around rich people. Number two, highways. When you read the Bible, you'll see beggars around. They're close to the highways. And then number three, the temple. There are three areas where beggars are normally located in the Bible. Those are the three. And so we find here that this one is at the temple. And he's sitting by what the Bible calls the beautiful gate. Now, Josephus was a, was a Jewish historian. He wrote a book many, many years ago, uh, back in biblical days. He actually lived when Jesus was alive. And being a Jewish historian, he saw this with his own eyes. He wrote in, in the history, in Jewish history, that this gate that this guy was sitting at was made of Corinthian brass. Now, when you remember we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll remember that Corinth was absolutely incredibly wealthy. It was the mega, the mecca center of the world at that particular time. So here's this, this wonderful brass door that's made out of Corinthian brass, if you would. And according to Josephus, this is what he said. He said it took 20 men to open and close that gate. It was massive. It was beautiful. And so here beside this massive, beautiful gate, get the picture, is this broken, 
hurting, crippled man, the beggar. And then I want you to see the third thing very quickly, and that's the belief. You see what happens here in verses 6 through 11? The Bible says that he fastened his eyes on, or Peter fastened his eyes upon the man along with John. Here in this passage of Scripture, the word fastening his eyes, that's the same word that's used in chapter 1, verse 10, that communicate that when Peter and John, were, when they were watching Jesus ascend up into heaven, they fastened their eyes upon him in amazement, seeing what God was doing. That's the same word that we see here in this text. When they fastened their eyes upon this man, they knew God was about to do something miraculous. And so we find here in this text this belief system, and let's pick it up again in verse number 7. We know the narrative. We see what happens. They said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the Bible says when that man received what they had gave him by faith, we find him, he stood up, he started leaping, he started jumping, he started praising God, he raised such a commotion out on that porch. Bless God, the whole folks came around and said, what's going on out here? And we know exactly what went on. God had moved in a mighty way. And I'm going to tell you this, when God moves in a mighty way, it'll do three things. Watch this. It'll bring you joy. When God moves in a mighty way, it'll bring you joy. Just a few minutes ago, had a guy walk into the church. And he, he's not in this service. He's, I, I don't know where he thinks he's in Sunday school, maybe somewhere. He's in Sunday school. He's in Sunday school. He came in the church. He said, I had to come to this place today. I had to see the place where you would host an event and, and, and invite people to come get saved. My daddy got saved. And he was so excited about what God done in his dad's life. I had to be here. I'm telling you what, it brings joy when God does something in your life. Joy. Look at the belief here. This man believed, and the Bible says it brought joy. He was walking and leaping. You ever been just so excited? You just you just walking and leaping. There was this man. Number two. Not only did it brought joy, but it also brought worship. Do you see what the scripture says? Look at what the Bible says, verse eight. He was praising God. Bless God. You ought to know where it come from. It come from God. And dear friend, this individual he'll be he'll be here in this next hour. He is here because it is from you. God used you to show who the giver of life was. And that giver of life is Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to me that he'd, he'd use some crazy, some crazy little event where we just feed people and give stuff away. Amazing to me. Absolutely amazing. Notice what he says here in the text. Not only did it bring joy, it brought worship, but it also brought attention. Verse 10, the Bible says that the people were filled with wonder and amazement. What in the world has happened here? What on earth has just taken place? This is the situation where faith is needed. Number two, let me show you a second thing here. Verses 12 through 18, I want you to see the source where faith is found. The source where faith is found. Hear this crowd, they are looking with wonder and amazement. And in verses 12 through 18, Peter sees it as an occasion to preach a message. And the Bible says that when he saw this wonder and amazement, he answered the people and he said, Hey, you men of Israel, listen to me very carefully. Why are you marveling at this and looking upon us that we, through our own power, did something for this man? Through our own holiness, did something from this man. 
See, that's the problem today. We're living in a culture where you got these folks on TV that think that they got something when they ain't really got nothing. And they're coming around and saying, hey, you need this or you need that. No, what you really need is you need Jesus. Only through Jesus can he save you to such a way where you can swing over hell on a dry corn stalk. Why? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Man, you need to be weary of some of these folks come on TV and say, well, I'm going to tell you right now. You send me some money, I'm going to send you this hanky. I wiped on it and preached with it and all this jazz. You ain't getting nothing but a stinky rag. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, our own goodness is filthy rags. You don't want mine anyway. Look at what this, look at what this Bible says here. A source where faith is found. He said, it ain't us. But let me tell you who it is. And then he begins to speak about the names of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when he speaks about the names of Jesus, he mentions five specific names to this Jewish crowd. Did you see it? He said, here's where the source comes from. He says, first of all, notice what the scripture says. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son. Here he is. Jesus. There's the first name. He said, I want to call your attention to Jesus. Jesus in the Hebrew is Joshua. It means the God of salvation. So when he said the God, the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, his son, he's Jesus. He is the author of salvation. He is the one that saved. He is the source by which this man who was born crippled is now walking today. Number two, the second name. Look at what he says. He says not only is his name Jesus, but he also says he's the Holy One. Notice the text. Look at what the Bible says. The Bible says it, it, G, that he had glorified his son Jesus whom ye delivered and denied him in the presence of Pilate. When he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One. You see it there? It ought to be capitalized. Why? Because he's pointing to the specific name of Jesus. He says he's the Holy One. The word holy there is the, is the Greek word hagios. And it means to be separate to God. He's saying here this. He said, you crucified Jesus Christ he was the Son of God. He was the Joshua. He was Jesus. He was the life giver of salvation. And you denied him. And you crucified him. And he was the Holy One. He was separated from God. He was separated from us. He was 100% God, but he was 100% man. He was born of a virgin, but he lived a sinless life. He walked this earth, died on Calvary's cross, was buried, and rose again the third day. Victorious over death, hell, and the grave, you crucified him he was holy and then watch this he says not only was he a holy one but he also says he's righteous look at what the bible says look at it the next capital letter is what you see it just that's right just that's where we get our english word righteous he's talking about the innocence of jesus he says jesus was innocent and you killed the innocent son of God. As a matter of fact, look at the terms that he uses here. He says, and you desired 
a murderer to be granted unto you. The word granted there means pardon. Your desire was to pardon a murderer. And you crucified the innocent one. He was righteous. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. But who did, the, who did Israel choose over Jesus? Barabbas. Remember the crowns? Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Give us Barabbas. And Peter, man, can you imagine? He takes full advantage. He's standing there on the porch and he says, look. The source of this guy's faith came from Jesus he was the Holy One. He is the one that's righteous. The one that you put to death. You crucified him. And look at what he uses next. He said, you killed the Prince of Life. The Prince of Life. What is the Prince of Life? The Prince of Life means the author. It's the, it's the Greek word archigos. And it refers to the originator, the pioneer, the beginner of something. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says that Jesus is the originator or author of salvation. He said, you killed the author of salvation. And then look at what he says here next. Whom God raised up from the dead. He said, he ain't dead anymore. And I love the next part. You see what he says there in the text? He said, we saw it. We saw it. And then he goes on to say here in the text, watch this. Oh, I, don't you love your Bibles? Gosh, I love my Bible. He said he's the prince of life. He's the author of salvation, the originator of salvation. And he is, watch this, the Christ. Follow along with me. Look at this. Look at what he says here in verse number 16. The Bible says here, the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. We're the witness of this. And his name. His name through faith in his name hath made this man strong. Whom you see and know ye, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I want that through your ignorance you did it. You're ignorant, all right? And also your rulers were ignorant. But those things which God beforehand had showed by the mouth of all of his prophets... Here it is. That Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Now, it's important to understand the word Christ there means anointed one. So when you put it all together, watch this. This is what's so neat about what Peter's saying. He says the source of where faith is found is found in Jesus, the Lord of salvation. The Holy One who's been separated to God. The righteous one who has been innocent of the crime that he died for. The prince of life, that is the author of salvation who was anointed by God and the only means by which you can have a relationship with God. We see the source where faith is found. And then he transitioned to verses 19 through 21 and we see the step where faith is demonstrated. The step where faith... Is demonstrated. He said, because of this, here's the one thing you've got to do. It's only one step. Notice what he says in the text. Let me show it to you right there. Repent. See verse 19? Repent ye therefore and be converted. The and be converted, that term, is a, it's a Greek term. It's a very fascinating Greek term at that. It means to return to God. It's pointing to the fact that there was a time in our lives, in history, where we had a relationship with God. 
That time that we had a relationship with God, with God was in the Garden of Eden when everything was perfect. The Bible says that Adam walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. And that relationship was broken by sin. Mankind willingly partook of what God said don't partake of. They say, well, I just don't think God should have told them about it. Why did God do that? Because he loves you. How would a loving God be loving if he didn't give you a choice to love him or not? How would we even know what love is if we didn't have a choice to love God? Dear, dear friend, listen to me. God didn't make us robots. We're created higher than the angels, the Bible says. That we might have a will to choose whether or not to go after God or not. To love Him or not. And in the Garden of Eden, we chose to love ourselves more than we loved God. And so God, in this perfect environment where everything was right, where everything was solid, where everything was wonderful, we messed it up. It's so, so wearied about individuals shaking their hand. God, God, if you were so loving, if you were so kind, you would have created a world where no sin existed. He did. We messed it up. But God in his great love for us sent his only son to die on Calvary's cross and bridged the gap between man and God so that we can go to heaven when we die. But the only way to get over that bridge is to repent of your sins. He says, repent and return to God. Now, this word repentance means to change your mind and change your purpose. Now, listen to me very carefully on this part. and I've got to hurry. I've got a little bit of time, but I'm going to run out quick. There are two types of repentance in our culture today. There's what I call worldly repentance, and then there's biblically repent, biblical repentance. Let me tell you about worldly repentance. Worldly repentance is when you feel bad because you got your hand caught in the cookie jar. That's worldly repentance. Worldly repentance... Not all the time, but most of the time, will never produce life change. Let me give you an example. I'm not proud of this, but I've got a heavy foot when I'm driving. And many years ago, I was coming home from church one Sunday afternoon and had my kids in the car. I was thinking about that, just the exact how it happened. And I actually, it was, I had more than one kid. I had about three or four kids. I got a total of five kids. But at this particular time in my life, I had three or four. So it was a couple of years when I was at Mount Pleasant, actually. And I was driving home from church. One of the city police officers pulled me over. I was speeding. I was guilty. I pulled over. He said, how fast were you going? I told him. I, he said, you know, you're speeding. I said, yes, sir. He said, where, were you, where are you coming from? I said, I'm coming from church. Where are you going? I said, I'm going home. And uh, I, I'm, I'm the assistant preacher, associate pastor over here at Mount Pleasant, and uh, youth pastor. I'm sorry. He goes back to his car and looks it all up, finds that I'm telling him the truth. And he comes back, and he hands me a ticket. And he says, have a nice day. He gets back in his squad car and I go home. I'm guilty. I'm going to pay the thing. I'm going to pay the fine. I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. 
He goes back to the station and he starts telling his buddy that goes to church, I'm his pastor. He says, I pulled over your pastor today. So I wrote him a ticket. You know he's doing such and such a speed on such and such and all this. And the church member said, you did what? He said, yeah. He said, I pulled over your pastor. He said, y'all be ashamed of yourself. You know how much we pay that fellow? He's poor. I just can't believe you pulled him over. You know how many kids he's got? Wife's pregnant again. You shouldn't have gave him a ticket. You should have bought him a TV. You got to be ashamed of yourself. He shared the gospel with him. Carol, I'm telling you the truth. The next week, I'm in church. The, the man, the church member of the church comes up to me and says, I heard officer so-and-so pulled you over. I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm sorry. He did that. He shouldn't have done that to you. And turned around and walked away. I went home, and on my answering machine, how many of you ever had an answering machine? Okay, my answering machine was blinking. All the old people got answering machines. I put that, I hit that, I hit that answering machine and said, beep. And here's what it said on the other end. Uh, Pastor Robertson, this is Officer So-and-So from the Carrollton Police Department. Uh, you know that ticket I gave you uh, last week? I want to apologize, sir. He said, I really stretched the limits on that. I, I'm so, so sorry. I, would you just take that and rip it up and, and throw it in the trash? I, I, I love you, and I, I apologize, and I'll be in church next week. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> I was guilty, but somebody stepped in on my behalf. Anybody understand what I'm saying? Somebody stepped in on my behalf. I broke the law, it's guilty. But I got a confession to make. That didn't break me of speeding. No, it was only a couple of weeks later I was heading to school. I was heading to seminary. I was going down that great stretch of I-20 to Lithonia, to Luther Rice. From Carrollton to Lithonia. And man, I was making some good time, if you know what I mean. It was me and Jesus. I was having a, the time of my life getting there. I looked up, and here's what I found myself. I, I, man, I can't believe I did this. I found myself in the HOV lane by myself. And I looked up, and behind me was a Georgia State Patrolman. His lights came on. Being an ignorant preacher that I am, I crossed that double white line. I crossed three more lines of traffic and got over there on the shoulder where I thought I'd be safe. He got out of the car smiling. He went walking up. I rode the window down. He said, uh, sir, where are you heading? I said, I'm heading right up here to Luther Rice Seminary. I'm a Bible college student, and I'm, I'm trying to finish out my seminary training here. And I, I don't want to be late, and, and, I, and I just, I was in a hurry. He said, son, do you know you're in the HOV lane? I said, yes, sir. He said, and he stuck his head in the car. He said, is there anybody in here with you? Yes, sir. He said, excuse me? Yes. The Lord is in here with me. It's me and the Lord. We're going to school. He didn't find that funny, Wayne. He walked back to the car and he come back. 300. That was over 300 bucks. Yeah, 300 bucks. 
Nobody stepped in on my behalf. On that. <laughs> Nobody. I had to pay that thing. What I'm saying is that that didn't break me. You see, worldly repentance doesn't break you. I paid the fine. Now, I paid the $300. I wish I could tell you that stopped me from speeding. I'd only been with you one week, about five, six years ago, five and a half years ago, on the way to the church. I'm trying to get here. I look up, and guess who's in my rearview mirror? And this is no joke. I'd only been here one week. And I look up, and it is a Jackson County State, or a Jackson County Patrolman. They don't hardly pull over anybody, but they got me. <laughs> My point is this. Worldly repentance oftentimes does not change one's behavior. When Jesus, or excuse me, when Peter said, repent ye therefore, he's not talking about that kind of repentance. He's talking about biblical repentance. What is biblical repentance? Biblical repentance is a genuine brokenness in your heart where you realize that your sins put Jesus Christ on the cross. Watch this. And that brokenness inside, that deep settled conviction in your heart says that you've sinned against God and God alone. And that change and that repentance is from you to turn away from your sin. And do a 180, not a 360. If you do a 360, you're going to end right back up on your sin. But you turn a 180 away from your sin and you turn back to God. It changes your life's direction. Sammy, when Jesus Christ saved your soul, he turned you away from alcohol and turned you to Jesus. And that's just one of many. We can just go down through the road. What God took you out of and brought you to himself. Repentance is a change. No change, no Jesus. And so he says this. You see, he says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted. You see, we find here uh, that worldly repentance I got pulled over. But biblical repentance I got brought under. And he picked me up out of the miry muck and set my feet on solid ground. True repentance equals true life conversion. And then I want you to notice the last thing very quickly, and this will close out the sermon. I want you to see the scripture where faith is taught. The scripture where faith is taught. He switches gears in verses 23 through 26, and he points to some Old Testament saints saying simply this, you want the millennial kingdom to come, but before the millennial kingdom comes, you've got to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You've got to quit worrying about Jesus sitting on the throne there in Jerusalem. And you need to start worrying about Jesus sitting on the throne of your heart. And if Jesus is going to sit on the throne of your heart, you've got to, by faith, repent and trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now here's the question. Have you ever done that? We find that Peter uses two primary examples here in the latter part of the text. He uses Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he does it in such a way to get them to cause them to get their minds on the fact that Jesus is coming again. And he's not coming as a suffering servant anymore. He's coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming. He's coming. And he could come today. Dear friend, listen to me. We find in Deuteronomy 18, he says, look, Jesus is coming. And then he uses a second one. He uses a second uh, passage of scripture in Psalm, or excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 3. 
In this psalm, it basically points to all the prophets. He says all the prophets are saying the same thing. All the prophets say that Jesus is the Messiah. They all point to Jesus Christ. So don't think, Peter and John says, don't think that my personal power or my personal holiness did anything for this fella. It didn't. What made the difference in this fellow's life was his faith. He had faith in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you the deciding factor in your life, dear friend, is what you do with faith. We exercise it every day. We exercise faith in the the seat that we're sitting in today. You're trusting that those four legs on that chair is going to hold you up. And the bottom line is simply this. Who's going to hold you up? When you die. (coughs) The Bible says it's appointed to man once to die after this, the judgment. I know where my faith is seated. March 22nd, 1988, I was a 14-year-old boy sitting in a service much like this. The pastor gave an invitation. I stepped out. I white-knuckled the pew in front of me for a long time and finally got tired of fighting and just let go, came forward. I gave my hand to my principal and I gave my heart to Jesus. And I'm telling you, I've never been the same since. Dear friends, the greatest need, the greatest situation that requires faith is where you're going to spend an eternity. If we're going to live with biblical clarity, then we must have a faith that's changed our lives. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had a faith that changed your life? You may say, preacher, I've never had that. I've got good news for you today. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Today's the day you can receive Jesus. Can we bow for prayer? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today. And maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. Today is the day that the Lord is calling your name, saying, be saved. Today is the day the Lord's warning you to repent and be converted. Repent and turn back to God. You say, preacher, how would I do that today? I want to do that. How would I do that? Dear friend, could I help you with this? The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If you want to be saved today, from your heart to God's heart, I'm not asking you to pray out loud, but what I am asking you is with a sincere heart, would you pray to the Lord and say something like this? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. And this morning I ask you to save my soul. I repent of my sin and I turn back to you. Thank you for dying for me and making a way that I might have eternal life. In Jesus' name.